All right. Genesis, the first book of the Bible. It is the book that we have been exploring September through November for the past four years. Genesis, that word that we call the first book of the Bible, is just an English translation of, of this Greek word, Genesis, which is real creative, right? So, and that comes from the Hebrew Bereshit, which means literally beginnings or generations in the sense of generating life, generating newness. Now Genesis, this book we've been studying, is not a mere telling of how the world came to be. It's not a description, a detailed scientific description of the process of creation. Genesis tells us about the beginnings of God's creation and His relationship with that creation and primarily His relationship with human beings. From the very beginning of the book of beginnings, we see that God is not only our creator, but he has a plan for his creation. He not only makes the earth and puts life on it, he's a God who loves his creation and calls it good, and he desires relationship with it. And not only does God desire a good relationship with his creation and a relationship with you, he wills it. And you know what that means when God wills something? it comes to pass. You and I cannot thwart His will. That's a promise, and I'm telling you right now, that's very good news. And it's going to take the power of God to bring that will to come to pass, because frankly, from my perspective and our perspective, it seems impossible. It seems impossible. Look at this week, for example, just in the life of our world. On the world scene, one of the biggest storms ever recorded flattened an island country in the Philippines. Millions left without basic needs for survival. It begs the question, can we trust God? Is He really in control? Is God leading us to a good end? In the life of our own church, we've been hit with people diagnosed with cancer. Depression is beginning to creep in with the weather changing. Chronic illnesses have been raising their ugly heads. Can we trust that God is in control? Is God leading us and our world to a good end? For the past few weeks, we've been rooted in the Joseph story, which begins in Genesis 37. And in that story, Joseph has a dream that one day he's going to rule over his whole family. At the time he had the dream, he was 17 years old. He was the youngest brother, not even close to being the heir of the family. His older brothers hated him, sold him as a slave, and let their father believe that his favorite son was dead. Joseph is sold to an Egyptian, then he's sent to prison for a crime he didn't commit, and I bet you Joseph was struggling with the questions, can God be trusted? And is God leading all of this apparently random and cruel life to a good end? Fair question. As we pick up the story today in Genesis 45, Joseph has been made second in command of Egypt. God has given him favor and wisdom, and God has placed him in a position to rescue his family and the known world. At this point in the story, Joseph has had contact with his brothers, but they don't recognize him. 
He's been testing them. He has been observing to see if they've changed at all over the past 22 years. He's been watching to see if they have repented of their actions. At the end of chapter 44, Joseph realizes from the words of Judah, one of his older brothers, that indeed their hearts have changed. And Judah in particular, the brother whose brainy idea it was to sell Joseph into slavery, Judah in particular has become a changed man, a repentant man. The stage is now set for a new beginning, a new genesis for this family. And I suggest that if we listen closely, there's a new genesis here for you and I as well. Would you stand with me as we read Genesis 45? So Judah has just broken everyone's hearts by his repentant words in chapter 44. And then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But the brothers could not answer him. They were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please, come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing or harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth, and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry. And go get my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of Egypt. Come down to me and do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me and you and your children and your children's children and all your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you. For there are still five years of famine to come and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it's my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept, wept on his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept on them. And afterward, his brothers talked to him. Now, when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat of the fat of the land. Now, you are ordered, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Do not concern yourselves with your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh. 
and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave changes of garments, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. So he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on this journey. Then they went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and indeed he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. But he was stunned. He did not believe them. When they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, It is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Father, oh, thank you for making us wait in a way all these weeks to get to this point, this crescendo of your story through the life of Joseph. Thank you for showing yourself faithful. Oh, Father, we need uh, what you have to say to us in this word. Make it come alive, Lord. Help it to, to not pass in one ear and out the other. Help it not to get stuck in our brain. Help it to travel to our heart and to make a difference in how we perceive you, perceive the world, and perceive each other. Bless you, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. What a beautiful story. What a beautiful story. Throughout the story of Joseph, one of the major themes over and over again has been this, this theme of estrangement. Joseph is estranged from his brothers, and his brothers don't even get along with each other, and his brothers are estranged from their father, Jacob. Joseph has been betrayed, forgotten, framed, imprisoned, and finally rescued. He's discovered that even though people have failed him all of these years, God has been with him. He's discovered that through the process of suffering and seeing God come through. In this opening scene, Joseph realizes that after 22 years of estrangement from his brothers, at least two things have happened. One, his own heart has changed. Two, his brothers' hearts have changed. And confronted with all this change, he can no longer keep his emotions under wrap. He sends his Egyptian servants away, and he cries so loudly that they hear through closed doors, and it ends up in Pharaoh's very house that Joseph is weeping. I am Joseph! Is my father still alive? Oh, to be a fly on the wall of that scene. And Joseph, is my father still alive? Remember, just a couple chapters ago, the narrator went to great lengths to tell us how Egyptianized Joseph had become, how he had shaved his head and be, took, taken on the look of a noble Egyptian, how he was named an Egyptian name and married an Egyptian wife. He even went so far as to when his brothers came, he pretended like he didn't know Hebrew, and he had this interpreter communicate between them. I mean, the ruse was really on. They have no idea that this guy Joseph is their brother. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Strange question, because for chapters now, these brothers have been coming to Egypt. 
and talking about their dad, who was obviously still alive. What's going on? Joseph knows his dad is still alive. Well, I think there's two things going on here. First of all, I think there's just yet another way of Joseph revealing his identity. He says, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? Up to this point, it's always been about their father. But now, he claims Joseph as his father. Second, and probably more significantly, the Hebrew word here for alive isn't just, is dad's heart beating? Is dad on the right side of the grass? Or is he... It's more, is dad doing well? Is he alive in mind, body, and spirit? What is the state of our father? Joseph is so emotional right now. You can sense that in the story. You know, uh, time and time again, he's almost lost it. He's run into closets and cried, and now he's just exploding with emotion. The cat is out of the bag. How did the brothers react? They could not answer him. Because they were dismayed, literally terrified. It's the same word that happens to to young people when they're in battle for the first time. Knees shaking, just absolutely, sometimes the scriptures get real graphic and excreting them. They're terrified. They're terrified in the presence of Joseph. They could not answer him. And we've heard those words before in a completely different context, haven't we? In verse 37, it talks about how Joseph uh, was in a horrible relationship with his brothers, how they hated him. And there it says they could not speak to him a kind word. There, Joseph is the little pep squeak 17-year-old brother. They hold all the power as older brothers to make his life miserable. And boy, did they ever. Now, in chapter 45, they could not speak to him because they were scared. Now the tables have been turned. Little brother is now second in command to Pharaoh himself. He has all the power to make their lives miserable should he want to. They knew they had sinned against Joseph. They deserved punishment. And they expected punishment. They are terrified. It is Joseph. You know, this is a Hollywood film. They'd probably go to great lengths to show some major revenge scene. But, you know, that's what Hollywood does. But this is not Hollywood. Joseph, whose heart has been changed, takes initiative to work. I emphasize the word work towards reconciliation. Now, when we're estranged from people, especially people who have hurt us, we often push them away. And even when they repented, if they repented, we still kind of expect them to do a little, to, to, to make the initiative to come back to us, right? And we kind of secretly hope that maybe they'll grovel a little bit too. You know, we would accept that. Uh, we like people to know that we know that they know that they should be sorry, right? We, we kind of like that. Uh, Joseph, though, doesn't wait. He sees evidence of their repentance. He says, come closer to me. Come near. And they do. I'm your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me to preserve life. If there was any question as to how Joseph could forgive these, frankly, dirtbag brothers, at least in their old life, we are now getting closer to a decent answer. First, let me just point out what Joseph is not doing. 
Okay? Joseph is not pretending like nothing happened, Jim Donath. He doesn't say, it's all good, when it's not all good. Okay? He's, he's not covering his eyes or suppressing his feelings. He's not saying, oh yeah, you sold me as a slave and told dad I was dead. It's okay. You know, most of us, I think, fall into one of two unhealthy camps. Either we like to make those who hurt us suffer, or we try and move on just too quickly, ignoring our feelings, ignoring the true pain of betrayal. Joseph is very clear here. Don't be grieved or angry with yourselves. Subtitle, even though you have every reason to be grieved and angry with yourselves. Don't be angry or grieved because you sold me. You see, Joseph is not hiding the fact that they sinned against him. And that is crucial to real reconciliation. True reconciliation always names sins and deals in reality. But then, but then, it moves relationships forward. Which second brings us to how in the heck is Joseph able to do this? Is he just a superhuman person? No, not at all. Quite flawed indeed. Uh, but Joseph realizes that God has been behind this whole thing. The same God-given wisdom that helped him to interpret dreams and gave him the ability to save a nation who is in seven years of famine, that same wisdom that God gave him helps him to see it was not you who sent me, but God. What an amazing perspective. All of a sudden, it hits Joseph that God has been faithful this whole time. That the dream that God gave Joseph when he was 17 is coming to pass 22 years later. His brothers are literally bowing down before him. They are truly, they are truly at his mercy. And it's all because of God. Three times in a row in this section, he mentions God's hand, God's sovereignty over his life. His statement in chapter 50, verse 50, sums it up best. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive, therefore, do not be afraid. What does that mean? Did God possess Joseph's brothers and make them become evil and do a horrible thing against their brother? And if God could do such a thing, why wouldn't he just possess Joseph and make him go to Egypt without all the drama? Is God's ethical and moral character in question in the story. Or, on the other hand, does God just allow everything to happen and from time to time intervene as He wishes? Giving a dream here or an interpretation there? Is God like some kind of unreliable parent who comes home from a business trip from time to time but you can never count on when that might be? What does this passage tell us about God? And what are the limitations of this passage? What doesn't it tell us about God? Well, positively, it suggests or affirms the doctrine 
that we derive from Scripture called sovereignty, or more mildly, providence. It portrays a God who does not cause people to do evil, but who's intimately involved at every turn of events. This passage portrays a world where God's will will be done, but also where choices matter. People are, as a matter of fact, participants in God's story, God's rescue plan for the world. How people participate, though, it's not scripted like some fatalistic worldview. So this is a very crude example. And it falls apart on a number of levels, but I'm going to go for it here. So last week, (laughs) we're in Disneyland, and Stella, who's almost five, so she's four, uh, and I get on... (laughs) Get on the ride. Don't tell her I said that. She's like, four, and she's got it all canceled down. We get on the ride, Autotopia. You know this really boring ride. Uh, and uh, Autotopia, you're in a car, and it takes you on this track, and you go through different terrains and different things. But here's the deal. Autotopia is a ride created by Disney, and here's the deal. Disney wants you to get in the car and go on the track in Disney's will is that that car will end up so that the next person who paid a hundred bucks to get in the park that day can get in the stupid car. Okay, That's the will of Disney. It's going to happen. Now, Autotopia cars, I get in there with Stella, I say, honey, do you want to drive? Yeah, I want to drive. It has a real gas engine. It has real brakes. It has a real accelerator. It has a real steering wheel. And you can steer smoothly or you can hurt your my neck. I, that might be it, honey. I, I'm still, she's, and you can go the speed limit or you can just hold up the whole line of traffic. Like you can decide on Autotopia not to go for a long time until someone yells at you. And in Autotopia, you're not supposed to hit the car in front of you, although you can. You are free to do that. In fact, Corey and Sophia, who are behind us, thought it might be fun to play bumper cars. I don't know why that is. But the point is, no matter how well you drive the Autotopia car, no matter how horribly you drive, even if you were to get kicked out of the park, that car that you're in is going to go where Disney wants it to go. The will of Disney is to get that car around the track. It's a bit like God's sovereignty. A bit like God's sovereignty. Here's the deal. God has a plan. He is going to accomplish it. But from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 2, he has included human beings. It's his plan to include human beings in his work. He has allowed our actions, our opinions, our attitudes to matter. Theologians have sometimes been helpful in explaining and examining Scripture and describing what they see from Scripture and formulating doctrines. God, for example, is sovereign. If you go to any good theological textbook, uh, sovereignty of God, providence of God, uh, God is good, God is omniscient, God is omnipresent, the list goes on because God is unfathomable. <laughs> right? Unfathomable. Thank you. But before we start getting too comfortable with our labels for God, and before we start to assume we can expect God to do A, B, or C, because our textbook says He's 1, 2, and 3, before we put God in a box, let's consider how Scripture actually reveals God. 
The Bible, isn't it telling that the Bible does not give us systematic theology with bullet points and chapter headings and approved dogmas? The Bible, what does it give us? Stories. Stories that are full of tension. The Bible gives us examples of how the living God interacts in actual lives of actual people in actual time and actual space in specific circumstances. Stories. Here's the caveat. We need to be careful when reading any book of the Bible because the Bible, is, it means a lot, right? But we need to be careful when reading this story of Joseph. On the one hand, listen, this is Holy Scripture. This is a God-breathed story. It is the authorized story of the sovereign God active in His real world. It is the true story of how God intervened to rescue the covenant family that would become part of His plan to rescue you and the world. Amen? That's a fact. We may be encouraged then by the fact that God has a good plan and this story in particular shows us that not the worst evil, not even a backstabbing family member who sells you as a slave or thinks that you're dead, can thwart the plan of God. Amen? I need to hear that sometimes. Not that my family's trying to kill me, but there's other stuff, right? But I want to encourage you, too, to see the limitations of said story. This is a story about Joseph, a particular man in a particular time. We can't all be Josephs. And what I mean is, there are lots of people who suffer injustice in the world who never ascend to be second in command of the most powerful country in the world. Are you all vice president? Okay. There are people who suffer and go to their graves suffering. There are people who are committed to God, love their neighbors, serve those around them diligently and go to their graves in obscurity with no books written about them, no sermon illustrations. The hope of this story is not that you and I will rise to powerful, wealthy, healthy positions. The hope is that a good and loving God is in ultimate control over the history of the world. In fact, that's all we can say about this story. That is until you take Jesus into account. Come on, let's go for a ride. In Matthew 5, we have these words of Jesus. I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. Do you know that in the first century AD, when Jesus spoke those words, the, the typical Jewish mindset was, what is the law? It is the, old it is the Hebrew Scriptures. It is every book in the Hebrew Scriptures. That includes Genesis. So Jesus is saying, I didn't come to abolish Genesis or the story of Joseph in chapter 45. I came to fulfill it. All right. Matthew begins his gospel with these words. The book of Genesis of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of, son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is describing a Jesus who offers a new beginning, a new Genesis New life to rescue us from the fallen Genesis infected by sin. God was able to use Joseph to rescue the known world from a severe famine. But through Jesus, salvation from sin and death is made possible for the whole world for all time. Amen? That's, that's awesome. Okay, so 
From the end of Genesis 37 to the beginning of Genesis 35, 22 years, Jacob and his sons assumed that Joseph was dead. 22 years, he must be dead. When in their eyes, he's resurrected. In their eyes, he's resurrected. They cannot believe it. They are absolutely terrified. Jacob, the dad, found it hard to believe until he saw evidence, until he heard the words that Joseph had spoken and saw the evidence of all these carts and all these goods that came from Egypt. The brothers could not speak to Joseph. They were estranged from him. That is, until he took initiative. He invited them to come close. He fell upon them, weeping with tears and showing not only with his words that they're forgiven, but with his actions and with his heart. And what happened after Joseph went and kissed each of his brothers and wept on them, it says. What happened? That's when, for the first time, it says they had a conversation. That's when the healing took place. The gap between Joseph and his family was being mended through his figurative death and resurrection. But there's more uh, to the story than just Joseph and his life. This story about Joseph looks forward to the ultimate reconciliation event. When Jesus rose from the dead, as Justin read earlier from the Gospel of Mark, he appeared to the women at the tomb. They were terrified. They were perplexed. When the women told other disciples, they were in disbelief. The disciples were troubled. These disciples who stood by as Jesus was brought to a mock trial, and humiliated and beaten and crucified were terrified when they saw and found out that he was alive again. They're probably filled with shame and fear. These disciples were, were broken. But Jesus took the initiative to restore relationships. He met each one where they were at. He had meals with them. He let Thomas touch him. He had that amazing restorative conversation with Peter. Joseph's story is about reconciliation between a man and his family. Jesus' story includes reconciliation with his disciples, but it's universal in the sense that his death and resurrection have made a way for us to be reconciled with God and with each other. This Joseph story illustrates a slice of God's sovereignty. Joseph was mistreated, but when he ascended to power and had the authority to punish men who harmed him, he recognized that God had taken all the evil intentions of others and made something beautiful out of it. God used Joseph's suffering and the suffering of his family to rescue the world. Not only from, fam from famine, but through the covenant family. The family through which Jesus would come. You know, Jesus also recognized the sovereignty of God. He was a willing participant in suffering, as the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When Joseph was found to be alive, the brothers went and told their father, Joseph is still alive! And indeed, he's ruler over all of Egypt. 
when the first disciples and apostles of Jesus preached about his resurrection, they proclaimed nothing short that Jesus was the king of the world. He is in the process of bringing his kingdom near and to bear on the world. He's recreating men and women and all created order. He is starting a new Genesis. Amen? Can we trust that God is in control? That God is leading us toward a good end? In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus proclaims, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The king who dies for his people has the authority to lead us into life and peace. Don't, don't let that go in one ear and out the other. Don't let the wonderfully large scale of God's plan to rescue the world through Jesus get you lost in a sea of ideas. What this means is that Jesus endured the cross to save you and that brings him great joy. I want to encourage you to do something a little bit out of your comfort zone. Not too much, don't worry. I want you to just look to the person next to you and if there's three, maybe do a three thing. Look at the person next to you and repeat after me. Jesus endured the cross For the joy of saving and loving, you. If you feel comfortable holding hands or placing your hand on each other's shoulders, I want to invite you to pray with me. Oh, Jesus, I, I confess that I have already studied this all week. I've said these almost exact words at our Bible study on Wednesday. I just preached it and I believe it in my head. Uh, but I still deflect what your word says about me. That you died because of the joy set before you in saving me. And I suspect that most of us here struggle with that same idea. We believe that you uh, would have died for a billion people or billions of people. We might even believe that you would die for someone else. Lord, we know um, the dark spots in our hearts, the, heart, the parts of us. We know the parts of us that are difficult to love. And we have a hard time believing that you really love us. Holy Spirit, we pray for your ministry to break through those barriers. And I pray as we have spoken these words to each other and now lay hands on each other, God, that your presence would be so tangible that you would help us to receive uh, the reality that you died and you rose and you reign because you love us and you love the people next to us. And you love the people outside of this building and outside of your church. You died for every man, woman, and child. Lord, help us to walk in joy of that reality. Amen.